0: Love me some Bobo. I miss me some Bobo. Years ago, when I first heard he had the chance to leave Dallas and come to Tulsa, well, we prayed very hard for him and his family. But they came anyway. (laughs) Our loss, your gain, all that. And clearly you have loved them well. It has been such a joy, privilege, and honor to be here to see what God is doing with your congregation. We have loved our time here so far. It has just been a delight. Jason still holds the record for the longest sermon ever given at New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church. On April 27, 2013, a 51-minute sermon called What's Love Got to Do With It (laughs) was presented for our edification, much to the dismay of the nursery workers (laughs) and children's church. Now, I recall it being quite the edifying sermon in between stomach growls and check-watching. Watch-checking. At any rate, it is from that church who misses them dearly, whom I bring greetings and salutations. And one good turn deserves another. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, Let's get started. My daddy set me up. He tricked me. I was shamed, exposed. When I was about five years old, I got something for Christmas that I actually wanted. And it was such a joyful occasion. I immediately ran up to my mother and gave her a great big hug. And I ran up to my father to do the same, but was stopped dead in my tracks with the universal symbol of don't move. He then changed the position of his hand, holding it out as if to shake mine. Men do not hug. Men shake hands, he flatly stated. I recall the confusion I felt at that moment. Caught, shamed for who I was. Guilt for what I did. After all, I just wanted what men should not want. And I got caught in the middle of it. Exposed. Turn to your Bibles, to the book of Isaiah, if you brought your Bibles, to chapter 6, and we'll read through verse 8. This is the gospel of Jesus this morning, given to Isaiah, thus given to the church of all ages, thus given even to us, This morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Then he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and invite the Lord's presence into this place as we lift him up and expound from his word. Almighty God, it is of you we speak and your story we magnify this morning. You are indeed worthy of the honor and thanks for who you are and what you've done for us and to us and through us. Speak, Lord, and open our ears that we might hear and we will give you the praise and the glory now and forevermore through Jesus and the Spirit. Amen. First point. The God who invented time is the God of timing. Why does God do what he does when he does it? Have you ever wondered why God would allow your abuser to get away with it or even let them hurt you in the first place? Where was God when you were being bullied, when your parents divorced, when you were humiliated or failed? I think that when we widen our perspective from the event to the environment, we can begin to develop clarity. Events never occur in a vacuum. Actions do not take place in a void. Context is everything. Reality in the hands of a sovereign God is our friend. In other words, God is always up to something. And for his redeemed people, his children, he is always up to something good. So, why now for Isaiah? What was the context for him seeing the second person of the Trinity on his throne? Why would God, at this juncture, transport Isaiah to the celestial throne room? What's happening in King Uzziah's life leading to death that would reveal this context? Well, we learn about this king in Second Chronicles 26. So let me just share a few passages and some history to help you gain insight in God's plan for Isaiah's story. And we are told the following. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years. And They made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He became amazingly mighty. So far, so good. But it goes on to say, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense at the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests, in the house of the Lord, by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leopard lived in, leper, being lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. There's the context. Now let's unpack some of this before looking back at Isaiah. First question when reading this passage should be, what is leprosy? Second, why would God choose leprosy of all things to inflict Uzziah? And thirdly, what in the world does this have to do with God's timing in revealing himself to Isaiah? Excellent questions. So glad you asked. Leprosy, or Hansen's disease, is a neurological disease that kills kills the nerves. You therefore won't feel it if you have an infection and it takes over. Little by little, killing your nerve endings and then moving up to your appendages. Now, although the absence of pain might sound merciful, especially in the middle of the night on your way to the kitchen for that glass of water and you stub your little toe on the coffee table, yet again, it's really not merciful. Pain is a necessary and vital component to knowing that there's something wrong with our bodies. Without pain, we are ignorant, and this is decidedly not bliss. Infection to fingers and toes and noses causes them to fall off, those who are leprous. In Uzziah's time, and even in Jesus' day, someone with leprosy had to walk down the street with a bell exclaiming, Unclean! Unclean! So what do we know this far? Lepers were ceremonially unclean barred from temple worship. Leprosy is the absence of pain. King Uzziah, through prideful worship, got leprosy, destroying his ability to feel. And getting it on his forehead disallowed him to feel or probably even wear his crown, the symbol of his pride. There's the context. Pride or false worship equals a lack of pain, denial. Now, let's peer into Isaiah's reality to see if there's a dovetailing of stories. And this brings us to our second point. Know God, know yourself in that order. A little while after the handshake incident with my father, I went into the first grade. Mrs. Ernst was my teacher. And man, did I love me some, Mrs. Ernst. She took no guff, but she was soft and warm and kind. And one day she went out of the room, leaving our class unattended. We started crumpling up big chief notebook paper. We threw these balls at one another. And she re-entered the room, and she was not happy. Who did this? She sternly inquired. I learned a new word that day. If you were involved in these shenanigans, raise your hand. Everyone in the room raised their hand except for one little boy over in the corner. Defiantly, he kept his hands at his side. You see, he'd made a covenant with himself earlier that year, a vow that no one would ever catch or shame him again. He, me, in self-exaltation, became self protective safe. Why would we hesitate knowing in ourselves, let alone sharing the suffering, sorrow, even the sin and shame of our stories? Because, I submit, we see it as worthless, feeling guilt and regret, and have therefore developed the narrative of, I got this, I can fix this. And even if we can't, we want to at least look like we can. First John 1, 7 states, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship. In other words, if you're not living an exposed life, you are definitely not having fellowship. The context of 1 John 1 is sin and fellowship. By living exposed, acknowledging your sin, you actually get more of Jesus. It goes on to say that in that kind of authenticity, in that kind of transparency, in that fellowship, quote, the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sin. It is a means of grace. The self-protective, self-exaltive narrative demands that we look good even if we can't be good. The redemptive narrative, however, allows, no, insists that I'm a mess, period. So I'm now writing a book, as as Jason um, alluded, and I'm hoping to get it published. The working title. Well, back in the 70s, there was a book written that some of you might uh, might remember. It was the beginning of the self-help movement. It was titled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Hated the book, but the title gave me an idea. The working title of the book that I'm writing is I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay, And that's okay. Brothers, sisters, God loves him a good mess. So is it worthless? Au contraire. Picked up a word or two in Paris. God takes that sin, sorrow, shame, and actually uses it for his glory and our good in that order. Let's examine how he might accomplish this scandalous work. Isaiah saw Yahweh on the throne, high and lifted up in all his majestic splendor. The angels, seraphim, surrounded him, singing glory to his name. Holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute, by the way, of God's character ever mentioned in triplicate absolute and complete righteousness. Glory. And the angels had six wings, two-thirds of which were used in worship, one-third used in work. Interesting to note, by the way, the word serah, the first part of "seraph" means flame. These beings are literally burning up in the presence of God, exclaiming words of glory marvelous, worshipful imagery. So Isaiah sees this and he says, cool. This is neat, God old buddy old pal. Yeah. Not even close. Woe is me. That's where he goes. Woe is onomatopoeia. Remember that word from high school poetry? It's a word that has the sound of the action in it. Buzzing of the bee is onomatopoeia. So woe would be the sound of a low guttural groaning. Or as we talked about during the Sunday school class, the groaning, the growling of an empty spiritual stomach. It is expressed by one who is deeply hopeless and helpless. It's what one experiences in the existential reality of deep and profound loss. In this version, the ESV, Isaiah says he's ruined. Some translations say undone. Neither is a great translation, in my humble opinion. It's just not translatable. It's the idea of being torn molecule by molecule apart. It's what happens to the darkness when the light is turned on. Isaiah has been transported to the heavenly throne room and is allowed to see God as he truly is. And that, that will then expose him to see who he really is. And he definitely does not like what he sees. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, to speculate a bit, I imagine that ten minutes before this vision of transcendence occurs, Isaiah probably thought he was a pretty good guy. Certainly no worse than the next guy. He was wrong. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah had a problem with his dirty mouth, but it only revealed the real problem of a depraved heart. He could now experience the pain of his sin. As the point of his faithlessness was stabbing him. True worship must expose deeply Isaiah's lack of existential godly sorrow over his own failure to reflect Trinitarian glory for which he was created was being laid bare by God. It worship is not about feeling good. It is not about our comfort or happiness. It's about knowing God. And Scripture tells us it's the kindness of God that takes us there. A.W. Tozer once said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. My father exposed me. He hurt me. He abused me. But, and hear this well, my father was not then, nor is he now, my real problem. My wounds are deep, to be sure, but my sin is deeper still. Many of you heard my story, and it's difficult. I spent years beginning transition to become a woman as I was transgendered. I desperately wanted, desperately wanted gender reassignment surgery. I lived in a gay relationship denying my God-given sexuality. I'm on the spectrum of reactive attachment disorder. I'm bipolar. I weighed 400 pounds. Spent several years agoraphobic, unable to leave my home. I was depressed and minutes away from suicide until my wife stopped my spiral of despair. Drugs and alcohol were uh, um, allowed some form of relief. I could go on and on. All this to once and for all numb my pain, my guilt, my sorrow, I was a hopeless mess. And now, I'm a being-redeemed, hopeful mess. And I don't share any of this to say a testimony must be dramatic. No. Just desperate. My motto has always been, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And in all of that, my father was not my problem. When I committed not to ever feel shame or exposure again, I was believing he was my problem or any others who would hurt me. And all I had to do was self-protect. That was a lie. My problem was and still is my depraved heart, which demanded pain-free living from others. I was trying to exist to receive from others, rather than give to others. I learned how to figure out the mood of my father, the bully, quickly. There were other bullies, too, whom I understood quickly to protect myself. If they liked humor, I could be the class clown. If niceness functioned, I can be charming. smart. Mr. Intelligentsia. Oh, I got very good at reading people before they knew what hit them. A chameleon, that was me. I could manipulate anyone after years of practice in order to get what I believed I needed most. Safety. Comfort. Security. Third place. Reconciliation informs redemption. Verse 6. The brilliant flaming angel took with tongs from the altar a burning coal. It was touched to the focused problem area, his mouth. Coals from the altar. The altar where animals are burned as an offering. This is the locus of salvation. On the altar, atonement takes place there. As an aside, don't you find it interesting that one made of fire would need a pair of tongs to remove a coal? At any rate, Isaiah's mouth was touched, his heart was cleansed, his guilt removed, and atonement received. God will always, without fail, expose the real problem, and then and only then deal with the deepest problem. The bad news is, is that the good news is worse. And we fight that tooth and nail. We have no right for guilt. Guilt is nothing more than a demand for control of, I got this, I can fix this, fix this, I'll try harder, I'll turn over a new leaf, white knuckle it to succeed. No. If there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, guilt is foreboden. Why? How? It's like this. God wants us honest with our stories so he can reveal his power in them. When I am weak, God displays his power. It's vital here to understand that God writes pain into our stories, that he might redeem our stories, that he might use our stories to tell his. Isaiah had a depraved heart, which informed his dirty mouth. God reconciled him, meaning he drew him close embraced him. God not only saved him from himself by exposing his mouth, he redeemed him by using that mouth. Isaiah was a prophet. He spoke truth to the people. God used that formerly dirty mouth to preach truth, God's truth. Redemption gives stories value, but there's no guarantee on how that story gets used. Isaiah had to tell the people of unclean lips they would neither see nor hear, that they would continue to live in their faithlessness. We may never really know why we're being reconciled or redeemed except that it's for his glory. And that needs to be good enough. I learned how to sinfully manipulate others to do for me at their expense. That is the very definition of lust. Eyes, flesh, pride. It is not love. I learned to read people well. And then I was brought to faith. I was exposed to my sin. My flesh got revealed. The gospel was applied. How does God redeem me? Well, for starters, you know what I do as a biblical counselor? As a therapist, I read people. Only now, after God working on my heart for a time, I read them for their good, at my expense. No, I'm not saying I'm some psychic or other such nonsense, but someone can walk into my office, and by the time they come through my door and sit on my couch, I get it. I sense what's going on, maybe not the particulars, but I sense their story. You see, God took my sinful strategy of self-protection and in redeeming it, has turned it into a spiritual gift, the gift of discernment. I get to manipulate for Jesus' sake. (laughs) Not really. But I do get to glimpse below the waterline of their personalities and look behind the curtain of their I-got-this mentality to offer them the burning coals of grace. Fourth and final point, share it to the glory of God, not pragmatically. Life as it is is not life as it was intended to be, yet God is Yahweh, meaning he is there for us. God is love, meaning he is good to us. And God is sovereign, meaning he is in control over us. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That He exists. How? Well, as Yahweh love and sovereign, for starters, rather than being self-protective and self-exalted, be exposed by grace. Enter your story, depraved as it is, by faith that God is worth it. And then engage that story through repentance. And then, and only then, embrace that story because it's proof you have been embraced by the author of your story. Live out your redemption in the lives of others. We, being the contextualization of the gospel, just like Isaiah was, get to use our stories redeemed in the lives of others. Listen carefully here. He has made us better off than if that sin, sorrow, and shame never occurred in the first place. And He used our very sin to do it. This is how He sets us up to do the good works prepared before time began Tim Keller said, Your life is not a series of random events. Your family background, education, and life experiences, even the most painful ones, all equip you to do some work that no one else can do. That's Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So live and love from that incredibly messy place, as it's now holy ground, sacred space. God has shown up there and has given you his name. Your finite, shame-filled, sin-soaked story is no match for God's infinite purposes. Do not hide that light under a bushel. It's not your light to hide. The route to life is death. The joy we seek is available, after all, when we die to our right to find it our way and in our timing. Because it's about redemption over resolution, as I said earlier today, we don't fix it. We fixate on Jesus, the author of our story. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., is possible when he has exposed us to where we attempt to find that fruit apart from him. And so we get to repent, go the other direction by his grace. If we are not, therefore, living in a constant state of painful disappointment in our sin and the sin of others, Leading to deepened dependency upon a God who does not give bad gifts to his children, leading to joy. We are not living by faith. My heavenly Father tricked me, He set me up in love. used my shame to expose my thirst. And he gave and gives value to my story. And if you're a child of his, he's doing likewise to you. And if you're not, use this opportunity to come to him for that embrace and value. Let's pray. Blessed Redeemer, who saw our sin, shame, and sorrow, and rather than take it out of the way as if it threatened you, you said to your enemy, I see your evil and I raise it a redemption. Watch me work. Actually using it to my glory and their good, you lose. So in your timing, you reach down to intersect your story of reconciliation and redemption with our story of depravity and desperation. You have made us reflectors of glory once again, thus exposing our fig leaves and filthy rags, and we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.